Kia ora koutou. it's me, Tereda, and this is HR Chats with me, Tereda. This is an ongoing series where we chat to some of the leading lights in HR in New Zealand around about all of the pressing issues to do with HR. And if you have been listening to the series, you'll know that we often give you a call out. If you want to suggest anyone we should chat to, if there are any burning issues that you think are pertinent and that we should raise, by all means, let HRNZ know details on the website. Today, we are chatting with Steph Dyerberg. She is a lawyer, has nearly 30 years of legal experience, a partner at Dyerberg Drayton Employment Law, specialist employment law practice in Wellington. She's a trustee of Mary Potter Hospice. She's been active in the pay equity movement for the past seven years and appeared in the Bartlett litigation. And in December 2018, Steph was awarded Wellingtonian of the Year for her contribution to tackling sexual harassment in the workforce. Welcome, Steph, and congratulations. Thank you. I have to do my queenly wave. That's a very good wave. Uh, I've been practicing for, my way. <laughs> did, did they give you a beautiful certificate for Wellingtonian of the uh, Year? A key to the city? Uh, no, no, Mitten's got the key to the city. Um, no, I got uh, two lovely trophies made out of crystal, which sit on our reception desk. I did want a tiara and a sash. Uh, I'm always very jealous of Hillary's sash and, uh, and tiara set up. Yeah, yeah look, they're, uh, awards are important, aren't they? Well, that one, something that as, one was, as big as this. That one was very significant. I was genuinely gobsmacked and it was such an honour, but it was really honouring the issue rather than the individual because there were certainly a lot of people um, standing on that stage in, in spirit. There was, I imagine. Mm. And, and yet here we go. We're still, the fight still continues. Yeah, the fight never ends. <laughs> it never ends. Hey, look, you are a lawyer. Um, probably one of the only things we have in common other than the fact that we're both human is that um, I, I tried to study law uh, 30 odd years ago. Um, didn't really work out for me. And the irony is that the law is now studying me. Um, I've often said that as a joke, but actually in this case, what's been interesting is that the law has spent the last well considerable period of time studying itself and all of the issues that it has. What's the, what's the most problematic law issue these days in terms of HR? I think it's still the culture of legal practice and large firms get a lot of attention uh, and I think there are good reasons for that. The culture of large organisations and hierarchical, traditionally male-dominated organisations, you know, it's, it's problematic. It's a culture that is often not very friendly to human life. Um, It's particularly hard on the young. And then as people go up through those organisations and aspire to join them as leaders, uh, life gets pretty hard for them. And I suppose, you know, there's a bit of a thing that it's it's a goal to be a partner in a law firm or a large consultancy. And it's seen as being the pinnacle of your career, but it really isn't um, for two reasons. One, once you get there, pretty awful it's pretty hard um, and it can be um, you know pretty damaging to relationships and family life and health but the second thing is there are so many other pinnacles to climb and you know I think there's a, a tendency to focus so much on that that people forget that there are lots of other ways of being successful um, so that, that's a are bigger you, issue I think is culture and that's been going on for a long time mm. do you think those young graduates People such as myself, you know, 30 years ago, I was enticed into law because I was good at English and LA Law was on and it made law look very, very sexy. Do you think they have a realistic expectation 
when they're when they're channeled through those university courses and they come out with their LLB of, of what is in front of them? Uh, no, absolutely not. If they come from a legal background, if their family, they've got someone in the family as a lawyer, then they might have a better appreciation of what it's really like. I think Wellington Victoria Law students um, have a bit better idea because they're at the heart of a place that has an awful lot of lawyers in it. And for example, the Wellington Women Lawyers Association that I've been a member of my whole working life and was convener of for the last three years, we have a lot of Victoria Law students, um, young women who are studying law at BIC, who are our members. So they come along to our functions, they network, they can meet senior lawyers and, and young lawyers as well and find out what it's really like. So no, I think, I mean, the study of law is an academic study. It is not something that is meant to um, prepare you for work particularly. It's not a vocational course. And then if you want to be admitted to the bar in New Zealand, you then have to do legal professional studies, which is a block course. And I think you can do it online now and have for some time. And then at the end of that, you get admitted. And, and that's a lot more about you know, file management and what conveyancing looks like and what litigators do and so forth. But nothing really can prepare anyone, I think, for making that transition from um, university to work to realise how different that is. I think that's always a challenge for every kind of graduate. Where does the change happen? Does it happen in the smaller firms or are some of the bigger firms driving that change? What do you different, do differently at, at Dyberg Drayton? Are, are you outside the norm in the way that you structure the organisation? Uh, yeah, I think we're pretty abnormal. <laughs> Atypical might be a kind of word. Uh, we set up a two-partner firm nearly 10 years ago and we both came from big firm backgrounds. I'd been at Russell McVeigh for seven years as a young lawyer and Johanna had been at what was then Phillips Fox uh, for a very long time actually. She was there for I think about 17 years and we made a very conscious decision that we would set up a values-based partnership and that we would run an interesting sociological experiment and we'd treat lawyers like people and see what happened. Um, and so we've got a lot of fine young people, well, a lot, we've got five lawyers working for us now. And um, I think that our approach is a lot more um, human friendly, realistic about hours and expectations, less competitive with each other. Uh, I think we work more as a team. All the big firms, oh, we work as a team. It's all about teamwork. There's no I in team. It's just nonsense. It's a very competitive, competitive environment. And success is measured individually. And so, you know, they look at your billable hours and how, how, much you, how much money you make for the firm. And that's a really big focus. Now, of course, we care about that too because we're running a business, but we don't have budgets, for example, and we don't encourage people to compete with each other. So I think that that's a real difference. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that world of Russell McVeigh, for example. I mean, they've been in the news for a number of, um, you know, HR issues, sexual harassment, various other things. They, they were a big target, probably because they were, you know, someone who, whose culture deserved to be targeted. What was life like then working in that firm? And, and do you know whether or not that's changed within some of those big firms now? Is there a move away from the practices? Or is it embodied by the kinds of people who are at that the top of that hierarchy? Uh, back then it was a uh, pretty dog-eat-dog. Dog. Um, I found it fairly 
difficult at times. I had young children during the time I was there. So I, I had my children a bit younger than a lot of my peers who waited until well into their 30s and sometimes older. Um, and I think I was fairly stubborn and determined that I was going to um, do it my way and you know remain true to my values and principles. And I was going to, you know, be a mouthy feminist and I was going to have children and have it all. And I think I had something to prove. And that probably didn't endear me particularly to some of the partners there. Um, and I think, you know, if you step outside of a sort of cookie cutter mould, it does mark you out. You're a bit of a square peg in a round hole and all that. So it was long hours, hard work, um, a lack of positive, constructive feedback. Um, was a real a real thing I found. You did get chucked a bit in the deep end. There was a real expectation that you would um, compete with other people. Use your elbows was a phrase that was used. And, you know, the goal of being a partner there and the big money that you'd make and the prestige was really, you know, a Kool-Aid that you could easily drink. Um, so, you know, it was a pretty tough environment. And I think to try and balance family life was very, very difficult indeed. And that's part of the reason why I eventually left um, got a job at Crown Mall, which was the complete opposite, except, you know, we worked really hard and I didn't work any less sort of hard or intensively when I went to Crown Mall, but the environment was so different. Um, not competitive, very collegial, very supportive, uh, family commitments were respected and it was really, you could take your whole self to work and then you could take your whole self away from work again when you needed to. And, and I think that's really the difference is you can work really hard, you can bring in good feeds, you can go to client events and so forth and you know you might not get home as much as you'd like to. That happens in all sorts of jobs. I mean, look at someone who's doing three cleaning jobs and tell me that they've got work-life balance. But it's how you're treated by the people you work for that really seems to make the difference, particularly to mental health and resilience. If you're treated with respect and you're made to feel that you are genuinely valued, and if something bad is going on for you outside of the workplace or in it, if people are responsive to that and wrap some support around you and try to help you with that, you will walk over broken glass for them. And so that's the difference that I found is the work I was doing in both those two environments, big organisations, lots of lawyers, lots of pressure, high profile, long hours, all that stuff. But the place that I had, you know, nearly a health breakdown was the place that didn't treat me as well as the place where um, I was, you know, made to feel like a really valued human. Yeah. I mean, did the results justify it in, in your opinion or do you think they could have got the same results the same the same income if they'd had a similar culture to crown law for example um that's a good question i felt that the quality of the work that we did at crown law was actually better um i thought the focus was far more on the work and um the crown interest and the outcome for the clients in a way than the commercial interests of, of a big firm. And I know that people will disagree with that, people in big firms particularly will disagree with it, but I've done both, so I do know what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I thought that um, it wasn't particularly good for business, I mean, especially if you burn people out, if you lose a lot of that top talent that you've spent so much time and money, so much resource investing in, um, you then lose them because they either leave because they are not enjoying it or someone poaches them or they go overseas and you never see them again, um, or they just burn out, they have health burnout. That's not good yeah. for business. And that's the thing I could never understand is why it was seen as being good for the bottom line because I, I didn't think it was. 
So from an HR point of view, really, you know, you're in a you're in a situation where your best and brightest who have worked and, and struggled and got to this place mm. are suddenly immersed in this this cauldron of craziness um and you know you would know many of your peers uh, certainly a lot of the people that i went through law with who became lawyers many of them have extricated themselves from the industry and you think you know they loved law they just didn't like doing law or being being a part of that machine so from an hr point of view you know where does where does that i guess in some of those big firms where does that change come from does it come from a from an hr level or does it have to come i guess as well from those those partners driving that change and is there is there a change in the nature of who those partners are and are they looking at that yeah those are all really good questions um and i've actually recently had a session with a couple of partners from us mcveigh a partner in the special council actually this week uh talking hearing from them about the cultural change initiatives that they've been running at russell mcveigh for the last two years pretty intensively um i think those all of those all of the answer to all of those questions is yes Um, Yes, it has to come from HR genuinely being prepared to courageously put themselves on the line and say, you shall not pass, I will not tolerate this, not on my watch. So this is not okay, we're going to do something about it, here's my plan, here's what it's costing the business, here's the human cost, and here's what we're going to do about it. So that's important, courageous HR is really valuable. Um, Being able to, you know, speak truth to power is, is, you know, something important. It has to come also a commitment from leadership and it doesn't have to be every single person at the start because partnerships are partnerships generally of equals and and that can be tricky because you haven't got shareholders to account to or you haven't got a you know an an over an oversight of um, board you've got a board of the whole really Um, so it's got to come from leadership and they've got to be genuinely committed to a couple of things one is to doing things better but the second is to being told that they're wrong um, and it, there's a lot of finger pointing at what, you know, everyone else has to do differently um, in every culture change, but it's actually every single individual, particularly leaders, going, tell me honestly and frankly, with no fear of recrimination, what I need to do differently as a leader. So I think that's really significant. And then there's a middle echelon where things can get sabotaged really, really easily. And so if you've had a generation of young lawyers who have then become senior associates and they are supervising and and giving feedback to and maybe mentoring or coaching if you're lucky um, young lawyers and they have watched the example of the people ahead of them and then some really bad habits and seen people rewarded well for that then guess what they do to the juniors and that's often um, very, very sad. Uh, I've seen that happen before. So some of the things that um, Russell McVeigh has been doing, and I've, I mean, I, I took on board what they said. I always have, you know, a grain of salt about this stuff. But um, you know, some of the initiatives they were talking about seemed really sound. And those are things like uh, genuine feedback loops for people um, informally and formally to give feedback about what's working, what's not. And they gave some examples of some of the very blunt things that some of the lawyers fed back to the partners about things that they could do differently. Um, you know, not slamming on the table in frustration when you get an email you don't like was one of them. Uh, but actually having informal catch-ups and encouraging group the young lawyers to go off and have coffees together and then a spokesperson bring back some of the issues, for example. Well, that, you know, back in the day, that was not encouraged. That was not a thing. And if you elected yourself the spokesperson, you'd soon get your head shot off. Um, having workshops... Which is kind of, sorry, you know, Steph, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of ironic because what you... If I wanted an advocate as a lawyer 
frankly, mm. I'd want someone a little bit bullshit and a little bit spoken up and someone who is prepared to say, hey, look, you know, this is, we can drive this forward, we can make those changes and I'm going to stick up for you. It, it seems sort of counterintuitive in uh, a way the, that those well, are the, not the, the build, people they want. The builder's house is never finished. Um, look, just because you know all that stuff and because you're good at standing up for other people and, and knowing what's right and you're all there, you know, in the, in the interest of justice and you care about the rule of law, it doesn't mean that you're going to apply it to yourself. I mean, that's just human nature. Um, yep. But no, look, I mean, no, whistleblowers are never popular, right? And, and people no. who, who go in and say, hey, I don't think this is okay. I think you need to do something about it. Um, that, as I found, didn't always make you very popular. In the long run, I think you turn out to be right, and you know there's something to that. But I think encouraging people to encouraging leaders to be prepared to admit that they're wrong and to do things differently, encouraging and empowering and protecting younger people, particularly who are you know they're terribly unbalanced in terms of power. The power dynamics in large institutions and, and large firms are, are really uh, out of whack. So if you're a summer clerk or a, an intern or a, a law grad or a secretary, you do not have much power in a, a large law firm. So the positive measures that law firms are taking, some partners I think are doing it really well, to say, you know what, I'm going to shelve my ego and I'm going to admit that I don't have all the answers and I'm not top dog around here all the time and I'm going to you know, flatten that out uh, and I'm going to encourage people to give me really honest feedback and I'm going to be prepared to zip it, sweetie, and listen and then do something about it, reflect on it. You know, that's a really hard thing to do. And I mean, I went to really good executive coaching for a long time and my coach used to say to me, you know, it's really hard to change adult behavior even when you want to. You know, you, you have the best of intentions and then you open your mouth and out your mother comes, you know. It's really, it's hard. Old, old habits. Hey, look, does, does it kind of matter if, if the change is driven by people who honestly believe there needs to be change or if it's driven as much by, uh, you know, another group who really only likes seeing the name of their firm in the news when they're winning cases. They don't like the bad PR and they think, well, how do we get out of this bad PR? We better have a, you know, we'll put something in, in place. We'll have some coffee sessions. We'll get a report. Look, I think authenticity is the hardest thing to fake. Never know if your first name's Tay or Radar, actually. Um, Look, yeah, there's a fair bit of box ticking that goes on out there. And, you know, some of the accreditation ticks have had to be looked at again. And it's very easy to, um, you know, do a bit of window dressing and, and say, oh, we're going to run a whole lot of workshops. I'm going to have values and blah, blah, blah. Where the rubber hits the road is how authentic it is. And if the people in the organisation really do... Uh, create that themselves if they're really involved and engaged and saying this is not only what we aspire to and what we believe in and what's on a plaque on the boardroom wall but actually this is how we do things around here this is really what it's genuine you know I know that I can walk into the partner's office and I can sit down and say I'm really unhappy about this and I'd like something to change and know that you're not going to get punished for that that's when it's genuine. I don't care why they do it, to be honest. I really don't care if they do it because it's good for the brand, they're rehabilitating their reputation, um, it's for the bottom line, or because they're really good people who really care about people. And I don't think there are a lot of evil people in the world. You know, there's a lot of mad and sad people. There's not so many bad people. Um, but I think nobody really, very, very few people go to work want to hurt people, right? That's a psychopathy um, and that's pathological. But very few people do. What a lot of people do is have power and they don't have insight. 
and they've done done behavior their whole life and it's worked for them really well and they've got to where they are today so um, and they haven't always got there by being nice to people and so to unpack that and say actually this is the feedback we're getting that we're making people sad at work we're making people unhealthy they're working far too long hours and we haven't taken nearly enough responsibility for that that's a really good thing you know checking juniors hours for example we all fill in timesheets lawyers fill in a timesheet so you know what hours people are actually working and you can see them coming and going you need to monitor that you've got health and safety responsibilities every partner in a law firm has health and safety obligations because they're a part owner of that business they're a PCBU so you know they need to do that um, the creation of the union the Aotearoa Legal Workers Union was a really positive step and something I encouraged and I'm a card carrying associate member um, that's really significant and they've actually moved the dial on quite a few things looking at how much graduates get paid in law for example their starting rates are very low compared compared to other professions um, other people with degrees walk into government jobs for at least 10k more than a young lawyer starting off after their four years plus of study um, and they've looked at things like the minimum wage act are these young people who are being paid in the say 50k range 50 to 60 are they working such long hours that they're actually not getting the minimum wage every fortnight and so they, they've done quite a lot on that so i think yeah. those things are empowering young people having young people's voices being heard having them at the table i mean what have you got to lose by listening to them and making adjustments and they're far more connected with a lot of technology and developments um you know they know what's going on i mean that's you know why i like having young people around and i've got you know daughters in, in their 20s so you know they're always going to bring me back down to earth and tell me when i'm believing my own pr yeah, exactly. Hey, look, I'm thinking about that well-being side of things, and and we're thinking about these large firms. What about for those those young lawyers? And I know I had friends who went straight into you know uh, criminal law, defence. Uh, that takes a psychological toll. I remember seeing Greg King speak, um, mm. you know, and the toll that that it took on on Greg. It was it was one of the most incredible speeches I've ever seen. But you could yeah. see the toll it had taken. Is there anyone? Do they look after? people in, in, in that kind of way, people who are day in, day out, dealing with sort of the worst that humanity throws at each other? I don't think we've always been good at that. And the loss of Greg King was uh, a blow that, you know, we'll never get over. It was pretty awful. Um, I don't think we've always been very good at looking after ourselves and each other. And we've got a whole stream in the Law Society called Practicing Well, and there's, you know, free counselling that's available now and that sort of stuff. But you know, I remember doing a lot of work with social workers back when I used to do work for SIFs um, when I was at Crown Law and they had supervision and everyone said, oh, we have super supervisors. You know, well, barristers don't always actually. So barristers, I think, sometimes can be quite quite lonely they have their own collegiality and they have the criminal bar association and so forth but i think a lot of them um, can be quite disconnected and they are dealing with the day in and day out they are like frontline social workers in some ways and so to have someone independent an independent expert who can give you that kind of supervision the kind of supervision they give not technical operational supervision but actually not managerial supervision or oversight, but actually how are you, what are you dealing with, how are you feeling about that, do you need help with it, um, here are some strategies for you, are you sleeping, are you eating, are you hitting the, the drugs and the, and the booze. And I think in, back in the day, certainly the criminal lawyers, um, you know, 
there used to be a fair bit of hard drinking that went on, and that was one of their sort of coping mechanisms, and their collegiality normally involved having a beer in hand. I think that's shifting, um, and I think that's a really good thing. And I think we're much more aware of the need to provide the same sort of HR support, um, access to EAP, those sorts of things, that every other employer you know, has been doing for a while. I think law was pretty, pretty slow to catch up, because we went from this gentlemanly profession, you know, through to the boom days of big law, you know, which was a new development. I mean, law firms weren't like that before sort of the late 70s, early 80s. And then we had the crash, and then we had regrouping, and now we've got a huge diversity of the kind of practices. There are big law firms, then there are medium-sized firms, some of them have got quite big, and then there's boutiques like us, and then you've got the sort of sole practitioners, and then you've got the barristers. Then there's a huge number of people, particularly in Wellington, working in-house. And they've got their own challenges, whether in government or in, in commerce, um, working in-house as a lawyer. That can be quite isolating as well. So we've really got to be better at networking people and connecting them and supporting them. The other thing is the Law Society. I think there's become a, a distance between the Law Society, which is our, you know, our sort of industry association and regulator. There's a distance between the Law Society and the profession, which I think is a gap that's grown over time. And you get a lot of lawyers who just don't see the Law Society, whether their local branch or the New Zealand Law Society is particularly relevant to them anymore. And that's great pity because when I was a young lawyer, it was a real um, source of networking and making friends and collegiality. And there really was a sense of community, which I think has gone a bit. Yeah. Look, We've spoken there's now, you know, a, a diversity of firms. We're looking at the kind of gender inequalities, uh, sexual harassment, very other, various other things. But there's also sort of a still an ongoing lack of diversity, ethnic mm. diversity, I, I guess diversity of backgrounds within the legal profession. Mm. Have you noticed that changing? Are, are there moves to rectify that? Anything that you've seen that's working really well? And changing that. Yeah, it is something that still sort of plagues us and, they, and sometimes for panels or, or particular pieces of work or recruitment, you know, you're sort of searching around trying to find lawyers, whether they're Māori or Pacific or from other backgrounds, trying to get diversity um, into a situation and sometimes it can be a bit of a hunt. But, you know, if you don't try, then you're not even, you're not even trying. Well, you know, you're not going to get there. Um, We've got a shortage of people coming into law school and then successfully getting through and coming out and staying. And I think, you know, the survey results that we had a couple of years ago, um, the research that was done shows that the experience of Māori, Pacifica and Asian lawyers, LGBTQI lawyers, is much harsher. You know, that more harassment, more bullying and, of course, racism um, and discrimination. So there's still that sort of pervasive feeling that it is much tougher. I think there needs to be a lot more support of um, students in high school to encourage them into law school, um, no matter what the barriers are, and to support them, whether it's with scholarships, mentoring, coaching, um, work experience opportunities, um, having someone that they can go to. So I think there's a lot more that we could do to help them through. And I know that there are support networks for Māori and Pacific students um, at law school, but it's a tough grind. It's a tough grind for everyone. And if you're coming from a background of, you know, English as a second language, or you're a refugee or you've come from a, a socially deprived background or you just don't see people like you doing it if you can't see it you can't be it as an expression and I think there's something to that um, and I know we've convened panels through WWLA in the last few years where we've deliberately had events that either tackled topics of diversity 
healthy or have been very inclusive in the people that we've had speak on them. And we've had people come up in tears afterwards and say, I have never seen a person who looks like me on a professional panel before. You know, there's still a lot of white manals. Um, there's and a lot I think of white manals. Manals, panels made yeah, up of manals, men, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah there, there is a lot of one. And, yeah. and then, you know, we've spoken even in this series on on the pressure that is then put upon those people who are Māori, Pacifica, Asian, LGBTQ, mm. who, because they are then the ones constantly dragged up. And, and actually someone saying, look, I've got all these other things that I need to get done yeah. as well, as as well as being the go-to person for these. Yeah, I, I think that's um, very true. And it, it's a fine judgment because you do, you do you not ask because you don't want to dump yet more mahi on them? Or, you know, do you say, look, we really want to involve you, but if not you, then can you suggest someone? And so that often is, is quite useful and you can explain. The other thing is, you know, we had a, had a meeting with uh, representatives from Te Hongaroa Māori, which is the Māori Lawyers Association. And, and I think we surprised them a little bit when we said, what can we do for you? And they was like, oh, you know, because usually everyone's asking them to do something for them to, you know, sprinkle a bit of Māori on top. And I think that's yeah. disrespectful. So, you know, What did they them. say? What, what, were the, what they, did they say that well, you could do for them? They said it would be really good to be included, included early in planning for events and so forth, to ask them what would they like to see happen, um, you know, to consult them about issues that we were working on, to work together, come up with some things we could work together on. And also what we came up with was offering their members reciprocal membership so that they didn't have to pay two membership fees. Um, and so, you know, things like that are really practical. But the biggest thing is asking people, what would work for you? What would you like to see? Who would you like to hear from? Is there something you'd like to contribute? If not you, then is there a young person that you could coach along and, and bring up behind you? So, and I think that's really, it's empowering people to do what they want, to set their own agenda rather than doing it for them or to them. Or consulting at the end, you know, to get a bit of tau mari in there at the end, that is just hugely disrespectful. And you can understand why a lot of really, um, you know, good stroppy Māori chicks I know are saying, go away. See, look how, how elegant I can be when I try. Um, yes. No, no yes. Get, get lost. Um, we're not going yeah. to just be consulted at the 11th hour um, when you should have involved us at the, at the very early planning stages. So I think that thing of just recognising, and the thing is, if someone in your organisation, if one of your employees is always being called upon um, to be involved in things, remunerate that, recognise it, make it part yeah. of their job. If you actually, you know, relieve the burden on them to say, well, half of the time you're going to do this job, if this is what they want, I mean, only if they want. You know, if you're interested in doing this stuff, then 50% of your time will be doing your technical job and 50% will be doing this cultural stuff and we will recognise that and we will celebrate it and we'll pay for it. So, um, but I, I, only by agreement, of course, but I just think it's yeah. a bit like expecting people to be a union delegate in their own time you know, know they're contributing something to the organisation. So you, could, you should recognise that. What do you say to young people? You've got a couple of daughters. I don't know if you've encouraged them into the law uh, <laughs> or actively encouraged them away. When you're, when you're speaking to young people, if there are people speaking to, to college students or indeed even to people now that we're looking at a lot of people who have, you know, um, lost their current careers and maybe looking to retrain, mm. are coming in as older students, what would you say to them about entering the sort of the fraught world of the legal yeah. education system. I always hate it when I hear senior lawyers saying, oh, no, you don't want to do law. It's a terrible profession. I just yeah. think that's so sad. If that's right, then what are you doing to change it? 
you know, and, and that's probably what triggered me a bit um, when I hit about 50 and what my older daughter did start law. She didn't carry on with it. Um, but yeah, I certainly didn't push either of them in any direction. I just said, follow your passion and it, it's turned out really well. But, um, you know, I remember thinking, am I going to have to sit her down and have the talk with her? You know, the facts of life, not the other ones, the ones that, you know, she's yeah. going to be paid less after five years, have fewer opportunities. If she has children, she'll be penalised for it. She'll probably get sexually harassed and she may well be bullied as well. So have fun, sweetheart. And I just thought, you know, we have not done nearly enough. I'd been trying. I'd been trying my whole working life. But I didn't think we'd done nearly enough. Uh, little did I know the crisis that was then going to present itself, which could not be wasted, um, to say we have a terrible culture in some respects, a great in others, and we need to change it. So what do I say to young people? I talk to a lot of students and, um, and other people about what law's like, and I say, look, for me, although challenging and at times really challenging, it's been a fantastic uh, career for me. I really enjoyed the work. It's all about people. It's about doing things better, making a difference and preventing harm. So what's not to love? Um, it's been good to me financially. It's been good to me in terms of my lifestyle. I get to work with amazing people all the time. I learn every single day because I make a mistake every day. I try to make a different one every day. And, um, and I learn from that. And I say, how could I do things better? I did go and get coaching. I spent a small fortune on fantastic executive coaching. It made a real difference. Um, and I surround myself with smart young people who are a lot cleverer than I am. So I say to them, look, it, it can be a great career. It's um, challenging. It's lots of hard work, but it's no harder than scrubbing out a vat in a dairy factory. It's no harder than getting up and milking cows in the morning. It's no harder than being prime minister. You know, you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it, but if you're given opportunities. And so I say to them, you know, if you ever want to come and have a coffee or if there's someone you want to meet or if you want to find out about a particular kind of work, let me know. And if I can't do it, I'll hook you up with someone who can. So I try to let them know that there are real human beings in the profession who actually do care um, and that there is support available and, and also not to put up with being treated badly. You know, to not give anyone the permission to treat them disrespectfully and what the resources are if they are being treated that way. And we're creating a contact network. The Law Society's done some things. But I, I field a lot of phone calls from some pretty well distressed imagine. people. And um, I field phone calls through the National Friends Panel, which is part of the Law Society, but I also just get them because of my profile and the things I say. And I try very, very hard never to turn them away. And if I can't help them that day, then I'll refer them to somebody else who can. And I will go with them to a meeting or I will speak up for them or I'll give them suggestions about a strategy or I'll help them get out of there. Um, but most of all, what I say to them is there's nothing wrong with you. It's not you. It's not you. Yeah. You might not be perfect. You won't be perfect. You might not be the best performer in the world or you might not be learning quickly or you might be in the wrong job. But, you know, you made it through law school. And so therefore you are capable of being a lawyer, you just haven't been given great training or great support or, you know, you're actually being treated poorly. Let's see what we can do about that. Now, back in the day when I was a young lawyer and sometimes struggling, um, I had the occasional person that I could go to, a, you know, a colleague or a friend, but it, you know, it was pretty lonely at times. And I remember some of us when we were really young, we talked to each other. And of course, we had the collective wisdom of a pack of 23 and 24 year olds. Um, but I didn't feel like there were a lot of senior people who would put their hand out for us. 
um, it, that's grown over time. I think there's a big cohort of people now. I mean, I know so many fabulous people have been in the law for quite a while who are generous with their time and support. But I think, you know, that helps. If you're in trouble, you need someone tough in your corner. We do it for other people. We should do it for each other. And it makes a difference. You know, it will, it will open a door to a conversation that would not happen for them otherwise because they don't have the power. Exactly. Optimistic? I am apparently a really strong pessimist, but a good actress, so I've been told. Um, no, I actually am an optimist. Um, you have to be, otherwise you couldn't keep doing what you do. You'd have to think that things are capable of getting better. I am seeing signs of change and improvement. I am seeing young people being more empowered and banding together. The union's a good example of that. I'm seeing um, and hearing, I have a lot of conversations with an awful lot of people and I do a lot of public speaking and people come and talk to me afterwards. And I'm getting some people that sometimes surprise me, some senior people, not just men, but um, senior people going, I've never had this conversation before or no one's ever said this to me before. And I'm going, oh, there's plenty more where that came from. I can say all sorts of things you've never heard before. But they're going, I've just never walked in somebody else's shoes like that before. And I'm thinking, well, it's all over the blogosphere, but that's cool. Um, you know, educate sort of not yourself. been paying attention, really. Do you yeah. get frustrated with that? You say, for, for God's sake, you're an educated person. You've gone through law school. This is clearly in the news. You've probably got children or, or, or friends or, or relatives. Do you sometimes just want to say, have you just not been paying attention? How have you got this far in your life? I often, I often say that. Uh, my husband, who's a very wise and very tolerant man, I'm told, um, he told me early on in the day when uh, a male colleague, who I actually really like and respect and I think is a decent human, um, he said to me once, oh, if only there was a, I don't know, a tool or an app or something and you could um, do it and it would just take a few minutes and it would tell you whether you had unconscious bias or not. And went, you like Harvard Conscious tool, like the one that I wrote about in the article that was just published that would have landed in your inbox. You mean that one? Well, I send you the link again. And I went home and went, for goodness sake, I didn't quite say it like that. And uh, my husband said, I said, why? Why do men not educate themselves about this? Why is it invisible to them? And he said, people pay no attention to what they think has no relevance to them. And I think that's absolutely what it is. And it's like saying, you know, I have a male pot plant, therefore I'm sensitive to men's issues. Or, you know, I've got daughters, so therefore I'm not a sexist. So, well, how do you treat other people's daughters at work and in the world? Do you treat them the way that you would like your colleagues to treat your daughters? And they go, oh, Okay, what, have you ever asked your daughters about their experiences in the world? Have you yeah. asked them about how many times they get grabbed in nightclubs? Have you asked them about the sexism at law school? Have you asked them about what, how their boss treats them? Have you asked them these things? Have you asked them about whether their relationships are respectful? And they go, oh no, they talk to their mum. And we were no different. <laughs> no, we we yeah. were no different. Yeah. And so I think it takes, it takes real courage and it must be really, really hard, especially for men, you know, and this thing about banding around pale male stale, it's not terribly respectful. And, you know, men are perpetuating the patriarchy, but so are women. We're all steeped in it. We've all grown up in the same system. So um, it must be really hard for men to take a long, hard look at themselves, but also to ask those questions because you don't want to hear the answers to a lot of those questions. You just want to hear, I'm fine, even though we all know, you know, if you've ever been married, fine doesn't mean fine. Um, but, you know, we, we're scared, are you okay? You're hoping desperately they're going to say yes and you can move on to something else. To say, you don't seem okay, Could you, are you able to talk to me or can you talk to someone else? 
that's a particular kind of training and courage. So I think we don't all have it. Even HR professionals don't all have that. It's not an innate ability to sit there and say the right thing when somebody discloses something to you. So you need to practice it and you need to be prepared for the fact that the answer might be, no, I am far from okay. I need help. And then you go, right, let's roll up a stays. What do you need? What would help you? Do you want to talk about your options? So I, I think um, asking those questions, going and doing the reading, if you genuinely want to know what women's experience is, if you're a man, then um, asking some women would be a good start. But we don't owe you anything. It's not our job to educate you. There's a lot online. There's a lot. There are people's stories. There are fantastic TED Talks. There are blogs. There are surveys. Women talk about this stuff to each other all the time. What I've started doing is talking very bluntly to men about it. And I think it's for the good. You are right. You know, it, it, the amount of time that, that can be taken up from people's lives trying to educate people around issues. It's you know, when you can just it's go, just go. It, 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 it is exhausting. And actually, you've got other things to do. Hey, look, this has been just a, a great conversation. Finally, if there was anything you could say to to anyone in HR across the very varied world that HR practitioners work in as we, we look to the next couple of months and, and, and 12 months in particular, uh, you're in employment law, you've dealt with all of these, you've been in the Bartlett case, you know, a huge range of, of, of the gamut of legal experience in the employment sector. What would you say to people to look for in the next, in, in the next few months to, to a year? I think we do our best work as professionals of any kind when we put aside all the technical stuff in our skills and reach for our inner humanity. And I think there is a lot of pain going on. There's a lot of suffering. It's been a bit overwhelming sometimes, to be honest, during and after COVID. Um, you know, it's hard when a lot of people are in you in a lot of distress. But um, we need to show compassion to each other. Don't reach immediately for the sledgehammer. Don't immediately say we have to have an independent investigation. We need to punish this person. You know, they're probably human. They probably just made a mistake. They're stressed. You don't know what's going on at home. Find out. Um, and I think we just need to all be really compassionate for each other and, and just be kind and, and um, cut each other a bit of slack, actually. It's been really, really hard. Even for the super privileged like me, it's been hard and it still is. We've all got our own things that we're dealing with. And there are people, you know, I'm keenly aware of what a lot of other people are dealing with. And I think we should be super alert to the fact that we need to be kind to each other, look after each other. Very well said, Steph. Dyerberg, thank you. What a what a wonderful conversation. Um, that I we could have talk to enjoyed. you all day, clearly. Look, I know <laughs> you could, and look, I would go on. Um, but we're very busy <laughs> people. People have got we we are busy people, and people have got limited time. But look, as you say, a lot of this information is out there. It's up to people to go and find it themselves, and even to pass it on to others. Um, mm. You know, if they do see something, and and you know, we're in a time when when the best thing we can do is put ourselves in a very uncomfortable position and be challenged. Realize we, you know, we we are looking at the world through our own particular lens and you know just try to make a better world because it's the only one we've currently got i was thinking about that this morning you know it's, this is it this is it <laughs> we're, a, we're in it we're amongst I, it i think that's right i think we only have this one one life and this one world and this one um ecology so we're going to look yeah. after it um but yeah i think that being in a place of discomfort it's the only way that you grow you know the way that i've got any wisdom that i ever accumulated is through making mistakes and I think my superpower is making a spectacular range of mistakes and trying to learn from them. Marvellous. I think that is the best summation to the conversation we can have. You have been listening to Steph Dyerberg. She is a lawyer. I've, as you would no doubt have picked up with many years of experience.
And just a reminder, as we said at the start, if you know anybody uh, similar to Steph uh, in the HR field who you think we should have a chat with, then by all means, let us know. Simply email HRNZ. The link is on the website or indeed any topic that you would like us to cover. For now, that is all. HR Chats with me, Tereda. We'll speak to you again soon.